here this morning. We are, if you're visiting, a special welcome, and we're making our way through a new series. No, not new anymore. Uh, We're into a new series on the Gospel of Mark. Now, this is the, the second book of the New Testament, and it's believed actually to be the first one written, to be the oldest of the four Gospels. So Mark chapter 7, we're beginning in verse 1. If, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow the text in the, in the bulletin there. I was thinking back, um, I, I don't get to read a lot of it. I like Southern literature. And I was thinking back to high school. I think the first, to my knowledge, 20th century Southern piece of literature that uh, we ever studied, I think in 11th grade, was the play A Streetcar Named Desire by Tennessee Williams. And I don't know if you've ever read the play or seen the movie. But uh, there's, this, there's this theme that my teacher pointed out. Now, anybody with any training in English could have spotted this a mile away, but I was not so sophisticated in 11th grade, so this was news to me. But um, one of the main characters is Blanche Dubois. And Blanche Dubois, she carries herself very much like um, a very upright, demure, southern woman with like very sensitive, you know, just these real southern sensibilities. And as the story unfolds, you come to find out that she has a pretty wretched past and and a very sketchy story, is living with her sister and her boyfriend. Um, When when she's living with them in New Orleans or staying with them, she keeps taking baths in the play. And uh, my 11th grade teacher pointed out that, you know, hey, catch catch what Tennessee Williams is doing there, that, that even though she carries herself in a certain way, like she's an upright person, she knows that she's dirty. She, she knows that her life is dirty and needs clean. I, I would not have noticed that. Um, you know, th- that impulse is all through world religions of any kind. Uh, it might look like someone taking some kind of holy water and sprinkling it on themselves. It might look like a man in India getting in the Ganges uh, River. It might look like someone burning something and, you know, letting the, the smoke from the incense pass over their face. But, but there's this impulse where human beings know that something is wrong, uh, something is stained, something is defiled, and it's, and it's true of me individually, or it's true of my family, or it's true of my house, like my actual abode, and it, it needs to be purified if I'm going to have dealings with God. This text brings up this issue of um, people are defiled... What do we do about it? Now, and, and really, when you, read, when you hear the text, I'm about to read it, listen for how the words defile and defiled really are the key terms. They keep, they keep coming up. It starts out as an adjective. And by the end, especially with Jesus, it becomes a verb. What is it that defiles a person? And I, and I want you to think about this before I read the text. Jesus never disputes with the people that he gets into a dispute with. He never disputes that human beings are defiled. That's not the dispute. The dispute is, what do you do about it? What actually addresses the problem and what does not? Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups 
and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had um, a friend say something to you like, if you don't watch this movie, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. Or if you don't read this book, I'm not going to be your friend anymore because they want to bat it around with you and share it. Several years ago, a good friend of mine did that with a a book about actually the state where I grew up, Mississippi, and uh, and about New Orleans to a great deal. The name of the book is uh, Rising Tide, and it was written, I think, about 10 years ago. It's about the great flood of the Mississippi River in 1927. Now, to to give you just sort of a, a feel for the scope of this thing, my first summer in St. Louis when I was just, I just finished my first year of seminary was 1993 and there was a, a historic flood of the Mississippi River. St. Louis sits right on the Mississippi and um, wiped out areas, closed down businesses, you know, just the, swelled its banks, all that kind of stuff. I, I did sandbagging with church groups and stuff like that. The, the volume of water in 1993 was one-third of what it was in 1927. It was an, a catastrophic flood. 
affected the whole nation, really, economically. Well, um, one of the things that the author recounted about this flood, I'd never heard this term before, was sand boils. And a sand boil was was really at at the zenith of the flood, where the pressure was so massive. I mean, just the normal Mississippi River under normal conditions is incredibly powerful. It can move, you know, landscapes. But this was so powerful that even when people had reinforced levees and they had done extra sandbagging and, and you know, built, built uh, fortifications, the pressure would find some weak spot just unseen to our eyes and water would go up into the levee and something like a geyser would just start to come out of the ground. I mean, first you just see soil starting to pop up and then something like a geyser would come. And you knew when that happened that there was about to be a, a, a crevice in the levee and then it, it was going to flood. And there was nothing you could do about it because of the power of it. And if you thought you were going to do something, you were deluded. And here's the thing. Biblically, and this is true Old Testament and New Testament, the biblical depiction of the human heart across gender, across cultural you know, differences, whatever, the depiction of the human heart is that there is something wrong. And this thing that, that's wrong is so powerful, it pushes so hard, that if you think you're going to control it with externals or rules or rituals, or certain disciplines, if you think that will hold back all the power of this thing, then then we're deluding ourselves. That's the human heart. Now, notice, in this text, like we said, there's a dispute. The dispute is, are you, you know, hey, are you letting yourself stay in a defiled condition? And sort of the question up underneath that is, what, what do you do about your defiled condition? The Pharisees are trafficking in what? Externals. You know, your disciples, Jesus, they don't wash their hands the right way and they're not keeping these traditions, the tradition of the elders. But what does Jesus talk about? And this is very much like him. Look in verse 6. He quotes Isaiah back to experts in Isaiah. He says, Now, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. Look down in verse 18, the second part of 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart? Look down in verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come all these things. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at this famous story of Jesus on the boat with his disciples and this fierce windstorm comes on the Sea of Galilee, so much so that experienced fishermen are, are, are terrified. And Jesus calms the storm. He stills it. And that you're getting this picture in Mark of him as one who is fully man. He's so tired, he can sleep through a storm, hard to wake up. But he's fully God. He can speak and the weather obeys. And we made the point that if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. It's not that God hasn't revealed Himself in the other Scriptures, but if you want to see what does God feel about things, what excites Him, what uh, makes Him angry, what is He severe about, you look at the life of Jesus. Now, this is a perfect example. Because in the Old Testament, it says this. 
Man looks at the outward appearance. And boy, we do. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And what is Jesus, what is Jesus doing? You guys, Pharisees, you're talking about externals, and the issue is what? The heart, the heart, the heart. That, that's the flooded Mississippi. And what are we going to do about it? Can you control that through ritual? So let, let's look at this. With, with that in mind, that the heart is the issue, what's, what's the apparent cause of the problems? You know, and the apparent solution, that what's the real cause of the problems? What's the apparent cause of being defiled? What's the real cause of being defiled? And then finally, what's the real solution? Okay? And first off, what, what's the apparent problem? Look back at the beginning. Jesus is getting into his ministry, and it's just, it's just kind of getting more and more tense with uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. So here you go. They kind of are surrounding him now. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, time out. It's generally agreed that Mark wrote his gospel for a more Gentile audience, a more non-Jewish audience. So he'll give you these sort of explanatory, sort of background, uh, little, um, little nuances here. So here's what he does. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. Now, think about this. If, if you've been around the Gospels and you've been around the New Testament, when you hear the word Pharisee, you, you kind of automatically assume bad guy. And in a lot of the Gospels, that's, that's how it goes. But they started out with good intentions. The Pharisees started out as something of a reform movement because they looked around after God's people had been in exile, brought back from exile to the, to the promised land, places like Jerusalem, Judea, and sort of begin their lives again, these were the men who looked around and said, okay, wh- what are we doing? We are the chosen people of God. We are the children of Abraham. Look at how we live. Look how lackadaisical our culture is about the law of God. These are not, you know, as people have said, these are not the ten suggestions these are the Ten Commandments. This is the law of God. He says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We've, we have got to be all in when it comes to obedience, seeking the Lord, obeying. And so the Pharisees, their name probably means something like the separate ones, the set-apart ones, were men who had committed themselves to um, obedience to the law of God, and along with that, to certain things that had had kind of a code that had developed as a buffer in between you and disobedience. For instance, hey, all right, the fourth commandment, rest on the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath day holy, you know, rest. If you walk a certain distance, you know, no cars, if you walk a certain distance on a journey, the, the, the reality is you're going to be tired. So let's figure out what is a distance where if you walk past that, you're kidding yourself, you're going to be exhausted. Don't walk further than that on the Sabbath day. Now, that all sounded great. Like, we're just trying to get people to grapple with particulars, you know, kind of brass tacks, um, you know, real-life application. How do you keep the law of God? The problem was that over time, something happened in them that happens in us, and that is that the good idea rose to the level of Word of God or surpassed it. Now, we can sit here and think, whew, I'm glad I don't do things like that. 
think about this. Think about, like, how important is it to you that you or other people close their eyes when they pray? Because it's never biblically commanded. But if you grew up where you were scolded, you know, if you did open your eyes when you prayed, or if you're somebody who teaches children, or you have children of your own and you're trying to get them to do whatever, just whatever you can to remove, you know, distractions, so you want them to close their eyes when they pray, it can feel like that's something that God expects us to do. He never says that. And I tell the, the early service this, I've even been in the situation where I'm up here up front and I'm, I'm praying from up front, and it doesn't happen often, but where I've opened my eyes, and I've seen some of you with your eyes open, and I've kind of thought, which is bad on two counts. Number one, as we said, it's not commanded to. If I can see you, I have my eyes open to, to, to state the obvious. But that's never commanded. But it can feel like it is because it was a good idea. Here's the thing, to remove distractions, to concentrate, to pray with your heart, but it's not commanded. Now, notice as Jesus is, is nudging on the Pharisees. Think, think about at least two things he's addressing about their emphasis on externals. All right? The first is this. The externals, if that's really, if that's your thing, if you make a huge deal out of that, it goes from being a good idea to becoming ultimate. It becomes critical. All right, think about this. Think about, and, and I'm... I, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking from the perspective of like an adult with, let's say, a college-aged child or a child who's just finished college, so someone of marrying age. And so let's say you've got a parent and, and the son or the daughter has met someone that, 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 you know, a significant other, and so the parents are meeting him or her for the first time. Let's say they're meeting her. All right, now, these parents may have in mind, and Jesus quotes this command, the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, right? So they may have in mind, all right, we would like our son to marry someone who, you know, that's important to them too. So they meet the significant other, and now it may be that she is just incredibly nice and very bright-eyed, lots of good eye contact, and she's a, you know, she's a yes ma'am, no ma'am, yes sir, no sir kind of person. And they might come away and feel like, all right, she, she gets it. She's awesome. She may be, but she may not be. I mean, it may be that the tone, and, you know, tone of voice is important and things like, you know, in our cultural setting, ma'am and sir, that can be a way of honoring. But it may be that the external that we like is so valuable to us that we feel like, wow, I know them now when it's only externals. I mean, what, you know, we should ask ourselves the question, what is something that when I look around and I see someone do it or not do it, I think, ooh, they get it or they don't get it. Like, someone could be raising their hands in prayer when we pray together as a congregation. Some of us may be sitting there thinking, that's weird. You know, that, that's not how I grew up. When Scripture, it doesn't command it, but it talks about the goodness of men lifting their holy hands and lifting their hands in prayer. But to us, it may be off-putting. Or to someone else, they may think, oh, wow, that's the only guy in the room that gets it. But externals can become ultimate, and they did with the Pharisees. I think the more important point is this. Secondly, externals weren't changing the Pharisees. 
Where do you get that? Look in verse 9. And he said to them, you have a fine way. And I, again, I just, you would hate for Jesus to start a sentence that way when he's talking to you. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And by the way, these are the law people. To quote the law at them would just be unnerving to them, to be lectured by him. Verse 11, but, that being true, you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. I mean, what are you seeing there? Is that you guys, Pharisees and scribes, you're the masters, masters, of, at least at a knowledge level, the law of God. And you're masters of these traditions and these rituals and these buffers and these boundaries that, according to you, if you stay in those boundaries, then you won't be defiled. Look at what you're doing. For instance, if you end up having a really horrible relationship with your parents, and they get to an age where, in that setting, probably the father cannot financially provide for himself anymore... So, you know, and they didn't have much savings, so now they're really looking to family to help take care of them. You have figured out a way that if you've got a bad relationship with those parents, then that rather than do what the Scripture commands you to do and what a heart of love would have you do, you, you are able just kind of with the wave of the hand to say, oh, that money that would have been allotted to take care of mom and dad, it is korban. It is all given to God. And he said, when you do that, it's not just that you say, oh, you get permission if you want to to use that money to just give that to God instead of taking care. No, once, you, once a person says korban, they're not permitted to use it on their parents. He says you do all kinds of things like that. The externals will not change us. The externals can be a good idea. You know, closing your eyes when you pray can be a good idea, but closing your eyes in prayer for a lifetime does not produce reverence or heart engagement or any love for God. All right, so then that, now we're getting into it. All right, so what's the real problem? For the Pharisees, they would say, the problem is when you step outside of this zone, once you step outside of the established boundaries, you're defiled. Step back in, that's the answer. Jesus says, no, that's not the answer. Okay, he's going to say, what's not the issue and what is the issue? Negatively, what is it not? Positively, what is it? All right, negatively. Look in verse 15. And this is, he gets all, all the crowd to hear this. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Then look down at verse 18, just with his disciples, the second part of verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? In other words, it is not what enters you that creates the problem. It's not what enters you. What is it? Verse 15 again. The things that come out of a person 
or what defiling? Verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. Verse 23. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. He, he seems to be wanting to make the point clear that it's not what enters us that's the problem that, that, that would give us a status of defiled. What gives us a status of defiled is what exits. Um, let, let me give some examples. I try not to be too tied to my notes, but I had to write these down. The Internet does not insert lust into anyone. Neither school nor pop culture insert vulgarity. An antagonistic family member does not insert resentment. Um, The added responsibilities that we all feel as we get older does not insert neglect of God's Word or neglect of prayer. Cultural change does not insert embarrassment over biblical truth claims. The success or the looks of my peers does not insert coveting. And just even as I'm saying that, what, if you're thinking, I mean, you might, okay, you might be raising the question then, well, then, it, it, are you saying environment is not important? You're almost making it out like, okay, the problem's all in here, so much so it kind of doesn't matter where you are or who, or who you spend time with. No, that's not true. Scripture addresses that. But let's make a distinction. And I hate to use this example, but let me use this example. Think of a place like a Platinum Plus. Please don't ever go. Just, but for example... Think of a place like that. Does it entice what's in the heart of a person? Yes. But does it insert that into the heart? No. Does it provoke something that's in the heart? Yes. Does it produce it in the heart? No. It provokes and entices what's already there. And as I raised the same question earlier, I would raise it with you. Whether it's something big and splashy and yucky that just touches a whole bunch of people's lives or whether it's something very private, do you not know the experience that I know of coming away from some time with whether it's family or co-workers and just feeling yuck because of what I said or what I did or how I feel. And that sometimes the thing that I'm just the most enraged by, what, what enrages me is how it reminds me of myself. Just the gross, unclean feeling of that. And I'm not saying that our feelings, I mean, that our problems are only at a felt level, but you do sometimes feel it. So what's the solution? Um, look at verse 4. You know, Mark, again, he's, he's kind of giving an editorial comment. He's, he's helping the, the, the non-Jewish reader understand what's going on here. 
And he's talking about the Pharisees. In verse 4 he says, When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Two points. The first one, I'm just mentioning this in passing because it's interesting. Um, Some Christian traditions would say, if you baptize a person, you have to completely dunk them. You have to immerse a person for it to be a real Christian baptism. The Greek, you know, the New Testament written in Greek, Mark written in Greek. The Greek word for when he says wash is baptize. And, you know, a lot of people in the non-immersion crowd have, uh, have sort of noticed that verse to say, it is hard to immerse a dining couch. Just, you know, FYI. So that's just a little point. Just kind of like wave to that point as you're driving by. Just, just okay, baptism point. Back to the main sermon. Here's, here's the real deal. There, there, there are different Greek verbs for wash. And the one that, that Mark records is the Pharisees, they know that you, you don't want to just do what you do before God in a status of being defiled. You don't want to eat with defiled hands. You don't want to be a defiled person. And so the, a way of addressing that is baptizing. You baptize yourself. You baptize your hands. You baptize the implements of your home because you need it. And Jesus says that... that those actions will not do it. But man, does, does that make you think of something that Mark is such a striking figure that some people think he is the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. He says, there's one coming after me, and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. And then, then he says this, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what is he saying? I'm a fellow sinner. I'm another mortal man. So I can apply water to you because that's, that's my calling is to get people ready for the Messiah to say, do you need cleansing? Come publicly demonstrate that you need cleansing. Then you'll be ready to hear the Messiah. But that's all I can do for you. I cannot go in to your insides and wash you. But there is someone coming after me who can cleanse you on the inside. And man, that is not just one thing that's awesome. That's two things. Number one, that means, is, is it seems that we say every week, it doesn't matter if you have murdered or committed adultery or destroyed your life and other people's lives with coveting or embittered yourself with envy that you've created strife in every group setting that you step into, you can be made clean definitively in the sight of the living God who sees everything. You'll be clean. You'll even be cleansed of the thing you haven't done yet. The hatred, the lust, the theft that you haven't done yet. Does it excuse it? No. Is it forgiven and made clean? Yes. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable. If that's all there was. But then there's this. Um, in, in a famous old Christian hymn, Rock of Ages, not the Deaf Leopard one, the hymn one, it says this, talking about Jesus, Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me of its of sins, guilt, 
and power. Jesus, be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power, meaning even when my guilt is taken away and and I'm a washed, forgiven sinner, ugh, the yuckiness. These patterns, these behaviors, these reactions, these fantasies, these misconceptions that I still keep doing and operating in that hurt me and hurt other people. And I cannot change myself just through the power of discipline or ritual or whatever. But there is someone who can baptize the heart, not just the guilt, but to wash into motives and reasonings. Even the change that I'm not ready to make yet, he will go in and change. Man, that's good news. I mean, do you not feel down in your bones? I don't want to always be like I am right now. Yes, for the Christian, yeah, I, I do believe that all my guilt is taken away, but I don't want to live the way I live now every day. I want more compassion. I want to be more patient. I want to extend more mercy because there has been a truckload extended to me from God. That is the work of the Lord's Spirit in our hearts. Let me end with this. Uh, A biography, I feel like I'm showing off about all the books I read. Um, This is years ago I read this book. Doesn't even count. But it was a biography of a a minister, really um, interesting pastor in the 20th century. He's from Wales, but most of his pastorate was in um, London. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And before that pastorate in London, he pastored for 10 years in Wales, where he was from. And in his biography, it told the story that there was this period in his church's life where it just seemed like God was just raining down power and blessing. And people that were in that church during that time said, you just never knew who was going to come to church. And you didn't know what was going to happen. Not wild, it just, like, it was, people felt anybody can become a Christian in this town. Well, of all the people you would not expect to come to church, one morning um, a woman came and she was a medium. She was someone who, who communicated with the spirits of the dead and, and was a, you know, a medium, a go-between between the living and the dead. So she was somebody that was extremely attuned to you know, the, the presence of the spiritual and of supernatural power. And to her, she was you know, a believer in that. So somehow she came to Lloyd James's church and she told him later that when she walked in the sanctuary, she felt the presence, she felt a spiritual presence. And the way she described it to him later was she said, I felt a spirit that was clean. Which is amazing because whether she knew it or not, she used the vocabulary of the New Testament. When the New Testament talks about evil spirits, typically it calls them unclean. As opposed to whom? The Spirit of God, who is holy and clean, who is all that's pure. She became a Christian, by the way. But man, that is the power that all of us need. Is it good to have disciplines? Yet, please read your Bibles. Ask me if I'm reading my Bible. 
Let's have times of prayer. Let's be regular at church. Let's give. Let's have community groups. Let's build things into our lives, but those in and of themselves will not go in and change. But the good news is that God sent His own Son to baptize needy people, defiled people, with the Holy Spirit, which changes everything. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we, we would pray and we would acknowledge that we, we cannot be objective about ourselves and how we need help and how we have to admit that, that we cannot fix ourselves. And our Father, we would ask that, uh, that any man or woman or child here this morning who, who doesn't know that they have been baptized in the heart would look to you and say, please have mercy on me. Please cleanse me. Please, please wash all that is defiled. But Lord, for those who, who know this good news and believe it, oh Lord, may we turn to you again and say, continue your work in me. Cleanse me of its guilt and its power. And change me from the inside out. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.